The following audio is brought to you by New England Urban Church Planting and was recorded at the 2021 Fall Vision Trip held in Providence, Rhode Island. It is uh, certainly this is a privilege for me to be here uh, this evening, watched uh, this ministry grow and uh, become what it is today. Been a privilege to serve on the board uh, for the past few years and got to see some of you over the, the course of that time. Um, and so now, as Tim said, I just got back from Scotland. A few others have just were with me, so Morgan and Cara and Stephen. So if they all fall asleep, they've got an excuse, but I'll, be, I'll call them out if they do, since I'm up here having to speak. When I come back from Scotland, my accent is sometimes a little bit stronger than before I left. And so I'm going to try to slow down as well. Um, and also, because I just got off a plane, I feel like my, my head is in a bucket. And so you ever get that feeling in your ear? And so I'm going to, hopefully I'm making sense to you as I speak. So Tim has asked me to speak on, on this topic of the value of a poor person. And we're going to kind of step back a little bit, but just ask the question, why? Why do we seek to specifically plant churches in areas of poverty? So 20 Schemes is a ministry that uh, launched close to 10 years ago now, uh, seeking to plant healthy gospel preaching churches in Scotland's unreached, unengaged, poorest communities. It's the Schemes of Scotland. We'll share a little bit more about that tomorrow. Um, a scheme is uh, not a devious plan. It's an area of poverty in Scotland, kind of like housing projects would be here. Um, but what you're least likely to find in Scotland's schemes would be a gospel preaching church or Christian. In fact, you're more likely to find a Christian in the streets of Saudi Arabia than you are in the schemes of Scotland. The truth is that most of the world's poorest places, most of the world's places blighted by poverty, you'll struggle to find a church that holds to the gospel of Jesus Christ. You may find people doing good works, people doing good Christian works even, or works in the name of Christ. But will you find a church that is faithfully proclaiming the gospel and making disciples? Well, that's a problem. It's a problem because a third of the world's population lives in deep poverty. We estimate that almost 10% of the world, 689 million people, live in extreme poverty, less than $2 a day. In the United States, 10% of the population, 34 million people, live below the poverty line of $12,000 a year, $35 a day. We think of those in our own cities, in our own communities, who are just not experiencing poverty in terms of the lack of material wealth, but they're experiencing poverty in terms of the lack of access to health care and education and low living standards. We estimate about 1.3 billion people in the world are considered deprived, according to the UN. And those are statistics, those are figures, that each of those figures or statistics represents a person made in the image of God, represents a, a soul, represents a person who, unless they encounter Jesus Christ are destined for hell. But who will go? Who will go and make disciples amongst the poor? Again, step back a little bit further. What question could be, what would motivate us to go? What motivates us to go and to do ministry amongst the poor? What would motivate us to go and plant churches in poor communities here in New England and around the world? The motive that drives us to do something it's really important because what often motivates us to go is what keeps us when 
the going gets tough when we realize that this is hard work. That the people that we're ministering around don't want us there in the first place. See, why we do something is often more important than what it is that we do. There are many people doing good works. They get to travel around the world. I'm with Acts 29, church in our places. I'm often in different countries, different week of the month. I'm in a different place. And I see lots of people doing good works. I'm often in some of the poorest places, slums and favelas and barrios. And I see lots of, of good works happening. You see the, the Bill Gates Foundation pumping millions of dollars into disease eradication. When I was in Tirana in Albania a few months ago, I see this huge Islamic center right in the middle of the city funded by Saudi millionaires. When I'm in Kenya, in the slums of Kenya, I see investment projects building roads and bridges and railways with the signs of Chinese writing. It's the Chinese government pumping millions into these poor countries. Why are they doing it? What would motivate Bill Gates and the Chinese government or Saudi millionaires to pump millions into poor communities around the world? Well, they're doing it to gain influence. They're doing it to gain control, power. There's always a reason behind it. Even the good works that we do here in this city, there's a reason behind it. Some people are motivated to do good works because of guilt, to appease a, a sense of guilt over a privilege they may feel they have. Some do because they just love to be needed, to be appreciated. We do good works because we have that, that sense of being hooked on the feeling of Someone needs me. Somebody wants me. Some people may be motivated out of a genuine love for the poor and the needy. They see those suffering and their heart breaks and they're moved to step in and do something. Maybe some do good works of charity or generosity, maybe in hopes of gaining favor in heaven. Maybe God, God will look down on me and with mercy because they see how good I am and what good things I do. The reason why we do things, the things that motivate us to do the work that we do, reveals a whole lot more about ourselves than the very work that we do. See, we're to do acts of love and charity because ultimately, if we're Christians, we're to do this work because that's what Jesus would do. We do it because we want to be men and women who imitate Christ. Because what motivates us is not that we want to be needed, but because he is needed. What motivates us is not because we love the poor, but because we love Christ. What motivates us is not because we want to fix people's problems, but because we realize that we aren't even fixed. And we have problems greater than anybody else's problems. That problem is sin, and the solution is always the same. It's Christ. We're motivated because every man, woman, and child bears the image of God, the Imago Dei, and all life is sacred. And all life, all life is worthy of bowing down to the knee of King Jesus. If we'll be men and women of love and compassion and generosity and mercy, then we will put on display the person of Jesus in a world in desperate need of him.
Just to illustrate this point, we're going to a parable that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 16. And it's the end of Jesus' ministries. At the end of his ministry, he says a lot about wealth, about poverty, about the rich and about the poor. In this illustration, I think he, this parable, I think he clearly illustrates the value of a poor person. We read from Luke chapter 16, verse 19. There is a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And beside all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Jesus tells this parable. And first we see his picture of this rich man and this poor beggar. This rich man is, is clothed in purple, a sign of incredible wealth. He, he had all that he wanted. Fine clothes and opulent house, lavish lifestyle, feasting on fine food and wine every single day. How many people dream of, of that life? And if you watch uh, much of shows like on HGTV, you ever watch those shows like International House Hunter and all that and all these vacation homes and you see these people that seem to have more money than we'll ever have and they're just, you know, buying the second home. We can barely afford our first. Right? And they're, they're going around and they're, and they're comparing one house to the next and you see this picture of opulence and this lavish lifestyle, large houses, fast cars, private yachts, super jets, parties for the rich and famous, just Instagrammable life. It's the life of this rich man. It's presented here. But then at this man's gate is this poor beggar, Lazarus, covered with sores, desires just to get scraps from the rich man's table. While the rich man is feasting each day, he begs at his gate. He's laying there, suggesting he can't even get up. He's a cripple. can't even walk, lame. He just has to lay there sick and sore, full of shame each day. Last year I was in Kibera, a slum in Kenya, outside Nairobi, one of the largest slums in the world. 
close to a million people live in this slum in deep, deep poverty. I was working there with, uh, with some church planters who are working in that community. And there's a house there called a Swahip House, which is mentoring young girls. They're trying to rescue from people traffickers in that community. Many of those young girls often are, are wrestling with a sense of shame or a sense of fear, a sense of hopelessness. What strikes me about that slum is that slum is sitting on a, on a hillside. But on top of the hill is a, a high wall. And behind that wall is this gated community. All the, the rich and the powerful and the corrupt officials of the city live. Many who live in the slum work. You know, many of them are the servants of the, the rich behind those walls. It's a chilling example. The, the wall is built to really block off the sight of the poor in their own doorstep, as if they're not even there, as if they don't even exist. And that's what this rich man is doing. He's going into his gate, into his house, as if Lazarus doesn't even exist. He's been dehumanized. Like he's not even real. He's not even there. But Jesus names the beggar. He doesn't name the rich man. One of the only parables in which Jesus gives a name to one of the characters. He names the beggar. The beggar, his name is Lazarus. Lazarus means the one God has helped. Jesus often shows honor and dignity to the outcast. He touches them. He names them. He calls them to come to himself. He draws near to them. The story suggests that Lazarus was a believer. Despite his misery, he knew God. Despite his pain and his suffering, he knew and he worshipped God. To the world, Lazarus was the man to be pitied, to be discarded. We all know many examples of Lazaruses, even in our own city. The poor, the marginalized, the helpless. Perhaps it's the single mom desperate to keep her kids and pay the rent, struggling to make it through another day, walking to the bus stop day after day, and we just drive on by, oblivious to the chaos that she's living through. Maybe it's the man in the shelter. You don't know his name, but you recognize his face. You've seen him before again and again. The immigrant family can't even speak English, dealing with their own PTSD from trauma, having to get used to where they've landed in this new culture, to navigate this new world. Lazarus is miserable. His poverty has made him sick. He's covered in sores. You see, more often than not, poverty. Poverty can make people sick. It can wear on people. Mentally, their diet, their lifestyle can shorten a person's life. A lack of access to health care can leave people contending with chronic pain with nothing to relieve them. The dogs lick his wounds. The only relief he gets is the dog licking his wound, and yet even, cru more, even more cruelly, by being licked by the dogs, now he can't even enter the synagogue. Unclean. Outcast. Many would walk past him in disgust. He was an embarrassment. 
But every day, Lazarus would call on the rich man to help him. And every day, the rich man ignores him. He didn't even see him lying at his gate. The wealth and the extravagance of the rich man had made him blind and callous towards the poverty on his own doorstep. See, money and possessions, it can blind us. It can give us a false sense of security, superiority, even blessing. Now, wealth is not evil. Jesus doesn't teach us in the scriptures that wealth is intrinsically in its very nature evil, but he says that wealth comes with a warning sign. Wealth comes with a warning label. Wealth isn't evil, but wealth is dangerous. It could trap us. It can blind us. It can deceive us. It can lead us into a false sense of security, a false sense of blessing, a false sense of superiority. Are we blind to the needs of those around us, like the rich man, oblivious to the real needs in our own city, on our own doorstep? You know, we can't solve every people's problem. Our mission as a church isn't to alleviate poverty. Jesus says, the poor you'll always have with you. That's not our mission. That's not our goal. We're not motivated to alleviate poverty. But we must not become cold or indifferent or callous to the real suffering of those living in poverty. Don't feel guilty because of your wealth. But do feel conviction if you lack compassion for those who do not have the same wealth. 20 Schemes exists. We started almost 10 years ago now. Because we recognize that there are people in our own cities in Scotland. that The churches had forgotten. And Christianity shrunk in Scotland. It collapsed after the Second World War. It collapsed. The church tenders in Scotland halved every decade since 19. 19- 50, but where Christianity shrunk, it shrunk to the, to the city centers, to the establishment churches, and to the middle class, suburban, academic, intellectual centers, and it left behind the poor, the people living in the margins, abandoning them, abandoning them to an eternal suffering. Who would go? Who would go to proclaim the good news to the poor? Church in our places started. In 2017, back 29, because we recognize that a third of the world's population is living in deep poverty, but who is planting churches amongst them? Who will go and proclaim this hope of Christ to those who are at the city gates? Why the poor? Because Jesus himself said, I have come to bring good news to the poor see this rich man, this blind beggar, but then we see the rich, the rich in heaven and the poor in hell, and it's a twist. It's a twist that happens. Verse 22, the poor man dies, and he's carried by angels to Abraham's side. You see, Lazarus died. He died, no doubt, a sad, painful, lonely, miserable death. Maybe he was dead and long before anybody even noticed him is the, the stench of his body. Finally, people looked up and said they saw the dead body there. Nobody even knew he was there. Quickly, they noticed he was dead. But look at what awaits him. When he takes his last breath, angels come down and carry him to glory. 
He's ushered into the gates of heaven by angels, chariots. What a glorious entrance. He had spent his life watching the rich man pulled by chariots, being transported in luxury, but the rich man had never known luxury like this. The rich man had never entered through gates like this. The journey had been hard, exhausting at times, painful, but the journey for Lazarus had come to its end. And now he's home. He's sat at the rich man's gate, looking in, desperate to get food from the rich man's table. But when he breathes his last, he is ushered in by angels into the home of his heavenly father. And he dines as a co-heir of Christ. Jesus tells us he is carried to Abraham's side. It's this picture of this feast. He's reclining at this table. His poor, pitiful Lazarus is given the most prominent place at the table. He is seated next to Abraham. Abraham, the father of the people, holds him close. He says, worry no more, my child. You're home now. Like a grandfather holding a grandson. The pain, the misery, the shame, laying at the rich man's gates, it's gone. It's disappeared. As if it never even happened. You realize that as he's sitting with Abraham, he has no memory of it anymore. He had never conceived of anything quite as wonderful as this. The joy in his heart is overflowing. No shame, no sores, no misery, no sadness, no poverty. That's the hope that we point people to. That's the hope that we're pointing people to. It isn't a hope of of alleviating their poverty here on earth. It isn't the hope of a a better house or a better education or or better health care. It isn't the hope of healing. The hope we point people to is something far greater than that. This is the hope that Jesus is pointing us to. This isn't the hope of, of somehow relief, a temporary relief of a temporary suffering. No, it is the hope of eternal joy in the place of eternal suffering. What a homecoming it was for Lazarus. He finally makes a home. And this will be our homecoming too. This present journey can be exhausting. Maybe you're struggling with a battle with sickness. Maybe there's sorrow from the loss of someone you love. Maybe there's shame, regret from your past life. But there's a day coming when it will be as if it never happened. You'll be gone. Lazarus entered in as a rich man. But then the rich man dies. The rich man died and he took his last breath, perhaps surrounded by his servants, laying in his comfortable bed, having drank his last sip of fine wine, eating his last great supper. He lays down full and satisfied, his head on his plush pillow, and he dies. Surrounded by his servants, surrounded by his family, surrounded by people who adored him. But for him, there were no heavenly servants. No heavenly greeting. No entry into a heavenly home. No seat at a great banqueting table. None of it. Jesus just says he was buried. 
and he goes down into Hades. If Jesus uses the word Hades, he means hell. It's always a reference to hell. Jesus speaks of hell more than anybody else in the New Testament. In his mercy to us, he gives us a glimpse of hell. Hell is real. If you believe heaven is real, you have to believe hell is real. If you believe in Jesus, you have to believe in hell. It is real. And it is worse than anything we could imagine. See, Jesus paints a picture of hell. He calls it a place of torment. But understand that whenever Jesus needs to paint a picture of something, it's because there are words that cannot describe how bad it really is. He needs to paint an image of it because we cannot comprehend how truly tormenting it will be. You know why it's so tormenting? And why this story is so tormenting? Because in hell, you can see heaven. You can see into it. He can see Lazarus. He can hear. He can hear the, the voices and the singing. He can see them eating and feasting. He can see the glory of heaven, but he's banished from it. He is kept out of it as if he's sitting at the gates as a poor beggar licking his sauce, unable to get in, waiting for a scrap on the banqueting table. The rich man is trapped in a place of eternal torment. He cannot buy his way in. He cannot work his way in. He cannot beg his way in. He can only lay at the gates of heaven day after day after everlasting day with nothing but the scorching flames of hell to cover the source on his body. C.S. Lewis says that the safest road to hell is the gradual one. The gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. He didn't intend to end there. He never dreamed he would end there. He perhaps thought he was a good man. Maybe he thought he was a religious man. Hell is God's unrelenting wrath poured out on those who reject his unrelenting goodness. Hell is just because God is just. In heaven, in hell, the rich man begs Abraham to send Lazarus to dip his finger in water just to cool his tongue. You see this? See what, see what this rich man is doing? Even in hell, even in hell, he is still utterly blind to his own plight, his own condition. In hell, the rich man thinks he can still call on Lazarus to serve him. See, that's why hell is eternal. Because in hell, you just keep on sinning. In hell, you just keep on cursing God. In hell, you just keep on full of your own self-importance. You see, his problem was not that he was wealthy. His problem is he loved his wealth more than he loved God. And even in hell, even in hell, he thinks he can call Lazarus his slave. But the real problem for this man and the real torment of hell is that there is a great chasm between heaven and hell. None may cross it. Those in hell cannot see beyond, but they they, they can see beyond, but they cannot pass over it. 
They cannot get in. But there's joy in this verse too. It means that those in heaven cannot get out. Once you're in, there's no way out. You cannot get out. You see, heaven is a place where you'll only ever say hello. You'll never say goodbye. No one leaves. And finally, we see there's one way to avoid hell, but there's no way to escape it. It's one way to avoid it, but no way to escape it. The rich man, he continues to plead with Abraham. This is the chilling story, isn't it? The picture of the rich man in hell gives us a glimpse into the utter agony and despair of those trapped there. Hundreds of thousands of people every day are sleepwalking into hell, living their life blissfully, oblivious to the tragic fate that awaits them. Let our hearts be driven into a sense of urgency. There are people in this city, hundreds of thousands of people in the city, sleepwalking to hell. We don't believe that, then why are we even doing this? It's because we believe that, that we believe in planting new churches. But the rich man, he knows it's too late for him now. And so he pleads with Abraham to, to go and send a messenger to his brothers to warn them. But Abraham's response, Jesus telling the story, teaches us this. Abraham's response is really insightful. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. He's referring to the scriptures. They have the scriptures. They have all they need. They've been warned already. The Bible is the very word of God. Sent to open our own eyes to the danger we're in and to reveal to us the hope of Christ. God himself has spoken to us. He's revealed himself to us in his word. We have all that we need to avoid hell. This is good news. That's why the greatest act of mercy we can offer is to proclaim this good news, is to preach this word, is to hold fast to this gospel truth. It is all we need to avoid hell. The rich man ignored the word of God. He didn't love his neighbor. He didn't love his God. He loved his money. He loved himself. If only he'd believed the words of the prophets. If only he'd believed Isaiah 58. Is, this, is not this the first that I choose to lose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from his own flesh? Then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be near your rear God. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. He had all he needed. Jesus says, as he tells the story, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, then they will not hear, even if someone were to rise from the dead. Philippians 2 teaches us that Jesus came down from heaven to rescue us. He died on the cross and took upon himself the full measure of God's wrath intended for us. An eternal Savior absorbed an eternal wrath of God. 
so that whoever believes in him should never perish but have everlasting life. That he would rise again, come forth from the dead and proclaim that he is the Son of God. Did not the prophets tell us? Isaiah says that unto us a child is born and he shall be called the everlasting father. Zechariah teaches us, and I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him and as one mourns for an only child. Did not John the Baptist prophesy, Behold the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. We don't need another messenger. We don't need another word. We don't need another message written in the skies. He has proclaimed all that we need to hear to avoid the eternal torments of hell. You might be poor. You might be desperate. You might be hurting. You might be full of shame like pitiful Lazarus. But look to Christ. For those who are in Christ are more than conquerors. What a glorious hope we have. What a glorious promise we proclaim. Maybe sitting here this evening with a sense of a sense of your own wealth. You may be aware of your own wealth and realize that it's more than many in this life will ever experience. Well, use the wealth and the blessings that the Lord has given you to demonstrate that you love Jesus more than you love your wealth. Use the blessings that God has given you for the reason he has given it to you, to declare that he is worthy of every sacrifice, every act of generosity, that you live in such a way that declares that you love your the Lord your God, with all your heart and with all your heart and with all your soul, and you love your neighbor as yourself. You see, often it is how we value a poor person that reveals how much we value Christ. Don't be blinded by your wealth or by your money or your possessions. For what you do with it reveals who you are living for. Is Jesus Christ truly your Lord? I wonder if we recast this parable and put in place of the rich man, the church in modern America, living in luxury, gathering in our comfortable buildings, enjoying our feasts and celebrations, yet all the while indifferent to, oblivious to, dismissive of the poor at our gates. Jesus invited the poor to draw near to him. He knows their name. He called them to come to him in faith. And so should we. That's why we plant churches in our poorest communities. Because we can't keep walking past as if they don't exist. Hundreds of thousands of men and women in this state, in this city, in every state around us are living in real need. 
often struggling with a sense of shame, many battling addictions, mental health challenges, abuse, a host of other pain points that their poverty has induced. Are we cold and indifferent to their suffering? Let us go to them. Let us start churches amongst them. Let us become beacons of light in the midst of their darkness. Let us open our homes to them. Let us open our lives. Let us give cheerfully and radically our time and our treasures so that they may know that Christ loves them and he is their savior. Don't do it out of guilt, but out of love for Christ. He alone can rescue them. Not you, not me. He alone can save them. But because he can, may we not keep this treasure. May we not keep this treasure in jars of clay. But may we go and proclaim this treasure to those in desperate need of a savior. 